how it relates to the sermon itself. Uh, I've been told uh, by a wiser voice than my own that sometimes I can get a little too heavy. So I went through some translations, and my hope is that uh, it would speak not only uh, to our minds, but to our hearts, and that the wisdom of God herself will prevail in what I say uh, against all efforts I might make uh, to support that. So um, I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me in prayer. So beginning with Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn us back to dust and say, Turn back, you mortals. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, are like a watch in the night. You sweep them away, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are consumed by your anger. That's that part we didn't read. By your wrath we are overwhelmed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days pass away under your our years come to an end like a sigh. The days of our lives are seventy years or perhaps eighty if we are strong. Even then their span is only toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? Your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. So teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. Turn, O Lord, before we pick back up. How long? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, so that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad as many days as you have afflicted us, and as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be manifest to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and prosper for us the work of our hands, O prosper our hands. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Loving God, God of justice, holy word, holy wisdom, be with us all now in our hearts, in our minds, and most especially in our actions. Amen. So as I read and prepared for preaching this Sunday, uh, I didn't get any further than the first verse. I didn't read it all, of course, but it was that first verse that captured me, that seized me, that claimed me, and it was because of the word dwelling. And you look at the Psalms, and they're full of prayers in relation to God and a dwelling place. It is the way we want to be in this world. We want to dwell in God. And I thought, okay, well, what does that mean? Because it says in the second verse, before the earth was even formed, God was a dwelling place. So it's got to be something a little different. 
than what we might typically assume is a dwelling. So I said, okay, there's two meanings of dwelling. You have a dwelling that is a noun, a place where you dwell, a space you inhabit, a structure, a house, maybe even a home. Then there's the verb, to dwell. Now, this kind of dwelling uh, has to do with the actions that we take to create a space that is commensurate with our desires. This is how we live and what we do so that a house can become a home. So you have a dwelling and you have two dwells. And God is a dwelling place in all generations. What are some examples of a dwelling home or a house? I grew up looking at brick homes and wood homes, and since I grew up near the river, there was houseboats and there were different styles of homes. Uh, there's pier and beam, right? You've got tri-levels, you have endless variety of housing designs, structures. Uh, I still remember the first home that I could call my home or my family's home, and it was an old army duplex that my father had found for very cheap. I don't know how much he paid for it, but they were basically going to throw it away, so I'll give you a little bit for it. So they hauled it onto this little piece of land that my dad worked two years to purchase about an acre and a half of land in East Texas. And they brought it in there, had to get a, a bulldozer to grade the land <laughs> just to get this, this duplex in there. And then my uncles and grandparents and cousins came out and stripped down to where there was just a skeleton. My dad basically just needed a frame. But we were saving up. We put cedar planks on that outside. And, you know, my dad did the plumbing, electrical work, things he had never done before. Um, but for those who know my father, and I think in here, Amory might be the only one to have met my dad, um, he just does what needs to be done. When you live kind of out in the country, you don't have as much access to wasn't a perfect job entirely, but he did what he needed to do. And that was my home that I had probably for the next eight years. And we added to it a little bit. I don't think it was ever finished. Like there was there was an exposed wall the entire time we lived there. We didn't originally have central air conditioning. You know, we had a couple of window units and in the wintertime we'd all get in one room, turn two space units and they'd throw matches down to my brother and I. So and that was, you know, that was our home. The activities that we engaged in to make that a home were all about coming together as a family. We had grandparents over, and we did, and they usually were put to work because that's just what you did, you know. We, we worked together, we built together, and uh, that was how this first dwelling place for me existed. You also have two dwells. What are some things we do to dwell in our dwelling, to make a house a home? Well, I think the first thing is making food, right? Uh, I've got to enjoy some of the food that's been made by people right here in our community, and uh, that's certainly an important part of making a dwelling or making a house a home. So that's something we do to dwell. We make food for people, ourselves and others. We also get together, we talk, maybe we argue, we dance, we sing, uh, we do a variety of things. Uh, we even relax sometimes. I know that that's a, that's a tricky thing, right? Because um, we're told we should work, we should do these things, but you also have to relax. If you can't relax in a home, then it's not much of a home. So um, what that usually looks like is sitting on the couch, maybe watching the Astros, hoping they win the next two, as opposed to keeping us 
think about everything that's happening right outside those walls because you can't see it, at least not in that moment. We don't have to think about the fact that there are many structures that don't even exist in Harris County anymore, or Brazoria County, or Fort Bend County, or Jefferson County, or Orange County, or Jasper County, or everywhere else, right? As a result of parking. We don't have to think about that because we don't see it. We have what one of my friends referred to as the intoxicating amnesia of privilege. And if we have the privilege of living in a structure that keeps us from seeing that, then we forget it's even there. But just because we've forgotten, <laughs> there's been a lot of stuff happening out there because we have those safe confines, doesn't mean it's not happening. If I get my car and I go west to California, and I've done that multiple times, and I go through the desert, I can pretend that it's not there and that it's not scorching hot and I better not have gotten gas and I got you know, 10 gallons of water in my back. You know, I've, I can pretend that I'm not driving through a desert, but if I break down and I have to get out, I can pretend all I want. The desert's still there and the heat's still there and that dry zone landscape is still there and it's dehydrating my body, no matter if I pretend it's there or not. And so, Pretending and averting our eyes doesn't mean that it's not actually there. Just like pretending that these other verses in the psalm uh, aren't there when we choose to knock them out doesn't mean that they're not there. It doesn't mean that the psalmist isn't wrestling with the reality of suffering in the world and a God that is all-powerful. He is wrestling with the question of what we call theodicy in seminary which just means the problem of suffering. What, we, what do we do with suffering? How do we reconcile a God of love with endless suffering? That's a tough one. And I'm not going to give you the answer to that, by the way. Um, I don't think the psalmist gives you any answers to that. But nevertheless, the psalmist cries out, how long? How long must we suffer? And I suspect that if God is our dwelling place, and we're talking about a way in which God is not the same kind of dwelling place, maybe there's something there. Maybe there's a response there when we begin looking at other ways in which God is a dwelling place. Maybe there's something there that has something to tell us about what we do and about why that suffering exists. Father Don Helder Kamara, <clears throat> Priest um, in uh, Central America, and I'm forgetting what city, what his parish was, but um, he once said, When I feed somebody without food, they call me a saint. When I ask why we got so many people without food, they call me a communist. Because we're happy to give food out, but when we ask that other question about why, why is there so much need? Why is there so much hunger? Whoa! Step into something there. Just hold up. You go back to, you know, feed them. Don't worry about all that other stuff. You know, and I think the psalmist here is trying to tell us there is suffering in the world. And God is a God of love and justice. And there are plenty of reasons why there continues to be the suffering that we see. And it is related to the aversion of our eyes. It is related to that intoxicating amnesia of privilege, that forgetfulness that seizes us when we manage to create a certain kind of dwelling. Not the dwelling that is God, but a different kind of dwelling, a dwelling that is an escape 
not an exposure. And I want to suggest this morning that God as a dwelling place is a radical exposure to the brokenness and the suffering of this world. When you dwell in God, you can't look the other way. When you dwell in God, you can't help but see that need everywhere you look. The word for God, right? We know God's just a word, and it refers to this immense reality to which we are in relation through Jesus Christ. But the word God, going back about 800 years, in a variety of languages, means to be broken and poured out like a libation, right? So God is not something kept in a jar. God instead is something poured out of God, and certainly for Christians, we know this, right? Our God is a God that becomes broken and incarnate and offers God's self because God can't turn God's eyes from the suffering. And if we're going to follow this God and be in relation to this God, then neither can we. So if God's going to be our dwelling place, it doesn't mean that we're going to be comfortable and that we're going to be, you know, happy. I call that a Santa Claus God. And when we're young, right? We, we love that, you know, it's, it's nice to have that. And I know I'm foolish sometimes, and I like my Santa Claus God, who walks around with a bag of goodies and gives me what I want, because what I want is, of course, the right thing. You know, I like thinking that. But when I look at the psalmist, there's all kinds of other stuff. There's, there's a God that makes me uncomfortable. There's a reality in me and outside of me that I would rather not look at, that I would rather not face. There is a kind of self-examination required of me as a person of faith that I would rather not undergo. And I want to suggest there are a lot of people in our world, persons who are also fellow sisters and brothers in Christ, who spend a lot of time in relation to Santa Claus gods. They spend a lot of time in relation to a God who's only got a bag of goodies. A God who says, don't worry about all that, just smile. You don't need to worry about that. Just, you know, get a bunch of nice things. Ask for a bunch of nice things and you're good, right? That, that God and that false image of God is part of the reason why the suffering exists at the magnitude, at the level that it currently does. It's part of the reason why some people are kicked out, left out, abused, abandoned, dismissed, and others are not. God has a dwelling not primarily interested in our comfort. God in the dwelling place is not primarily interested in the satisfaction of our desires. This God, the prophet Micah tells us, asks but one thing, right? There's three things, but it's essentially one action, right? And what is that? Right? Is it to love kindness, to do justice, to walk humbly? That's what we're supposed to do. That's what God's interested in. The God of Jesus Christ, not so much interested in satisfying his immediate desires, Jesus most certainly dwelt in God, but Jesus also says, birds have nests, foxes have holes, but I got no place to lay my head. That doesn't mean Jesus didn't dwell in God, but it's not the same kind of dwelling. We think of dwelling as a place we get to get away, to steal ourselves away from all the stuff. But when we dwell in God, you don't get to look away. Even when you're resting, even when you're enjoying yourself, 
which you are commanded to do. That is part of the Sabbath. That is an important commandment in the Hebrew Scriptures. Our God wants us to enjoy each other in the world, in fellowship. But it doesn't mean we get to forget, right? Because as soon as we get finished here, we know that that's happening, right? Even while we're enjoying ourselves, we know that that's happening. One of the philosophers that I enjoy is a bit of a gadfly. He uh, upset everybody and didn't exactly make a lot of friends. Um, he wrote a book in 1681, I think, entitled Twilight of the Idol. And he said what he wanted to do in this book was to take one of those little tuning fork hammers, you know, where you hit something and you can hear how hollow it is. He wants to go around doing that to all these sacred cows and all these idols. Right? These Santa Claus versions of reality. So that we can see how hollow that is. How insufficient and inadequate that is. And in that book he writes, even the most courageous of us do not have the courage for what we really know. We've just pushed it down so far and covered it over and layered it over the things that we don't have to look at it. But when you start dwelling in God, all that gets lifted up. That's where that word apocalypse comes from. It means lifting the veil. So the revelation of God, or the apocalypse of God, is simply the lifting of that veil where you can't look away anymore. You can't unsee what God reveals to you. You can temporarily distract yourself. You can become inebriated. You can become intoxicated. But you can't look away and you can't unsee because when you come down off that high and when you have to leave that escape place, the dwelling as an escape from suffering, you're going to be confronted with it again. It doesn't go away. God doesn't go away. God of the dwelling place comes in and explodes the comfort of that security that you have mistakenly thought you managed to do all by yourself, right? God comes in and, and manages to tear away some of that stuff that kept you from seeing what's right in front of you. So, if this is the kind of dwelling that God is, then what does it mean to dwell in God? Well, we've already talked about some of the things we do to make a home, right? We share what we have with people we love. But what Jesus says is that whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my sister, my brother, my mother, my father. So Jesus comes along and starts breaking down biological barriers. Jesus starts breaking down racial barriers. Jesus starts breaking down gender barriers. Jesus comes in. Paul comes along but later and says, in Christ, there is no Jesus. Jesus comes in and begins tearing away at those boundaries that keep people from relationship. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And those two things are together. They are never separate. You can't say, I love God, and not love your neighbor as yourself. And you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you are not in relation to God, because God is love itself. We don't know what love is if we only think of it as getting what I want. If we only think of God as Santa Claus, then we're not going to understand the God that reveals to us the things about ourselves and about this world that we don't want to see. This building that God calls us to do is dwelling. Dwelling in God is an activity of being in the world. It is a way we interact. It is a way out and shake each other's hand and hug each other's neck. It is a way we protest and we march. It is a way that we go to our, uh, we become civically engaged and we go to the meetings and we advocate for things.
things that need to be done that aren't being done. It is the way we stand up for those whose voices have been silenced, whose bodies have been broken and targeted and persecuted. That is how we dwell in God. That is how we build. Because what are we building? Well, the Lord's Prayer says we're building that kingdom of God and we're praying for it to come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It says forgive your debtors because your debts have been forgiven. God is a God of debt forgiveness, right? Of absolute forgiveness. But what that means, the responsibility that you and I bear, is that we got to go and do likewise. When, when the Pharisees, we already read a little bit about it, people always trying to ask him questions and get him cornered, and then he says something, they don't ask any questions anymore. So when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, they want to know, well, who is our neighbor? Because what they're trying to do is create a category of who we actually have to care for. What does he say? He doesn't even tell them. He says, go and do likewise. He says, you go and be the neighbor. He doesn't tell them who the neighbor is. He says, you go and be that neighbor. The neighbor means near dweller. That's what that word means in a variety of languages, right? Not mouth, right? The one who dwells near you. What would it mean to dwell in such a way that the near dweller dwells with you and that we dwell together? Sounds like it'd be a little bit like communion. Sounds like it'd be a little bit like the body of Christ. Sounds a little bit like a God that is broken and poured out and given for the salvation of this world. And it sounds like we're being called to do that, and that that might be a response to the suffering that the psalmist asked about. When he says, turn, O Lord, how long? Jesus Christ is the answer to the psalmist. Jesus Christ is God saying, here I am, as the prophet Isaiah says, here I am given for the forgiveness of sin, given for the suffering of this world. I am going to show you a different way. I am going to lead in a different way. I'm going to wash my servant's feet. I'm going to wash my disciples' feet. I'm not going to lord this power over you the way the principalities and powers of this world and the rulers of this world. I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to dwell differently. Dwelling is building. A dwelling in God is not an escape, but it is an exposure. And this building reminds us of a different time before we develop that amnesia, that terrible taste of amnesia that keeps us from doing what we need to, what we need to do. And I believe that if we choose to follow Christ and become the body of Christ as church, then we're going to start engaging in the kind of dwelling that Jesus did. We're going to start engaging in the kind of dwelling that when Christ is it, we all kind of do. We're being called by God to do, but then, then it gets cut off. <laughs> all that energy, all that momentum that you saw around Harvey, it is beautiful. And it is God's spirit being poured out, helping and serving, but then it stops. It's as if we can't dwell for too long in God. We need a break from God. We want to go back to that other dwelling. Because dwelling in God requires this of us. And I want to invite you today, as you continue to deepen your relationship to the Cathedral of Hope, to the United Church of Christ, to the Church Universal, I want to invite you to work together prayerfully, faithfully, consistently fumbling towards this kind of dwelling. Because that's what we do. We're all broken and poured out, pieced back together. This remembrance is also a remembrance. We're getting remembered. We may have forgotten, but we're getting remembered today. Just as we have
but it's not too late. We have an opportunity to dwell together today as God calls us to do. As the psalmist says at the very beginning. So I'll leave you with this. Dwelling in God is building with God. Dwelling in God is building with God. And if we are not building with God, then we are not dwelling in God. We're dwelling somewhere else. And if we're dwelling somewhere else, then that kingdom of God, that body of Christ, that beloved community is not going to become 